All right, Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the joy. We thank you for the birthdays, the celebrations. Lord, I pray that we don't take for granted just the life that we have and the breath that we have. And uh, I pray in this time, Lord, as we, we study your word, that you would speak to us. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be present, guiding us into truth, giving us understanding to the truth, um, allowing us to focus, Lord, and not be distracted by our plans to come or even the things that we're going through. Lord, give us just a time of rest, Lord, a time of freedom from those things, and um, just give us wisdom, Lord, and insight to your word and to who you are. So we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 16, Luke chapter 16. Turn there with me to verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we will get you one. Anybody need a Bible? If you don't have a Bible in your hand, you need one. Remember, don't use your phones or iPads or whatever you have. Just use the Word of God. So, we have been slowly, slowly making our way through. And um, one of the things I did this week, because Pastor Kevin encouraged me to, was to kind of break down the rest of uh, my schedule for, for teaching through the book of Luke and how many Sundays and how many weeks and months it'll take to finish uh, the 24 chapters. Obviously, we're in chapter 16. we got a few more chapters to go. Because one of the things we want to do is we want to we kind of want to end on time so we can start something together. Um, but I looked through it and I broke it down, and we have like through October to get through the rest of the book. Um, so we're slowly making our way through. But I like that because we're not trying to rush through it. Um, I think like like for instance, reading the Bible in the through like in a year, I think is great. But sometimes we can gloss over things and kind of just read it to read it, and sometimes it's too much. And so going through, you know, five, six, ten verses at a time is super helpful. Obviously, here we have a big chunk to go through, verses 19 through 31. Um, but slowly making our way through, and we have been in this section where Jesus has been teaching. He's been almost shaming the Pharisees uh, and the lawyers, but all at the same time while, while sharing the gospel and bringing hope and encouragement to the tax collectors and the sinners who are nearby hearing this. Because remember, at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus was invited by one of the head Pharisees to a supper. You guys remember this. And it's from that point on that Jesus has just been, like, just completely sharing the truth with them, which is tearing the Pharisees apart because they're not surrendering to it, right? It's their pride that's being broken, while at the same time, again, the sinners and tax collectors, they're drawing as close as possible to Jesus. Remember, it says that they're pressing in. Right? They want to hear the word and they, because there is hope in the word. Right? Here's these people who are the outcasts of society, people that everyone looks down upon, that thinks God doesn't love them you know, because nobody likes them. They've got horrible situations, either they're poor, this or that. And so the assumption, and it's the wrong assumption like we'll see today, is that God doesn't love them because there's no blessings that you can tangibly and visibly see in their life. And so they find hope in the words of Jesus, just like we do, right? When we come to the word, we hear the hope of Christ because we realize how wretched and broken we are. Now, there may be some of us in the room who don't hear that because we're content with the lives that we have and we feel like we have no need for a savior, right? Our pride is what gets in the way. And Jesus talks about that in the New Testament, right? He gives grace to the humble, um, but not to the pride because the pride don't need grace, they think they don't need grace, so they don't come to the throne of grace. So Jesus is going through these different teachings, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, 
in chapter 16, he's been hitting on the theme of money, of riches, right? We talked about that. He says at the end of verse 13, you cannot serve uh, two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and riches. You can't serve God and money. And now one of the misconceptions that we have is that we, we think based on this, that you can't serve God and money means that you can't be a rich Christian, right? And that's not true, right? Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're going to hell. And just because you're rich doesn't mean that God loves you more than everyone else, right? That is the wrong assumption that we have, right? This is just a thing that God can bless us with, but it is something that can get in the way of our relationship with Christ. And especially in this time, there was this this thought, this idea, this belief, again, that if you were rich, it meant that you were doing something right because God was blessing you, okay? And they thought, on the opposite end of the spectrum, that if you were poor, that you did something wrong and that God was, was like, cursing you or, you, you know, you were getting what you deserved, right? Just like if you remember the story of the guy who was a paralytic and the disciples asked Jesus, why is he this way? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? You guys remember that? And Jesus is like, no, it's, it's so the works of God can be glorified through him. It has nothing to do with, with sin. And so we have to, to get away from that misconception. And Jesus is going to share that here with us and with the Pharisees here in chapter 16. So let's go ahead and read it through, through this story, and then we'll break it down. It says in verse 1, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great goal fixed, so that those who, can, who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one, though one rise from the dead. And this is really interesting. How many of you guys have read this or heard this section before? Okay, how many of you have not? Just to get an understanding. Okay, good. I'm glad. Um, you know, what we've been studying is a bunch of parables right? It's, it's almost like a, a, a fictional story that Jesus gives with a biblical or, or a heavenly truth behind it, right? And it often was a story that people could understand and relate to, 
right? But there was also something deeper to the story. It wasn't just about being morally good, but it had a biblical, spiritual truth to it. And those who were searching for that truth would understand it, and those who weren't just heard a good story and heard of a good and moral you know, man or character within the story. Now, we read earlier one of the stories of the, the prodigal son. You guys remember that in chapter 15, where that was a little bit different because there was no good characters in that, right? There was usually some type of good character, but here there wasn't. The two brothers, the two sons, they just weren't good, right? And then here we get into something that's just as different, but from a different point of view is that here it seems as if it's a parable, but most of the parables would usually begin with um, the kingdom of God is like, or there would be no names to the characters, right? So this is the first time that we're reading of a story that Jesus is sharing, and someone has a name. And what's the name? Lazarus, right? We get the name of the poor man, but we do not get the name of the rich man, right? Obviously, we have Abraham too. But here we get Lazarus. Now, one, one thing to understand is that this Lazarus is not the same as the other Lazarus, right? The one that died and Jesus brought back to life in John chapter 11, okay? So, so understand this is a completely different person because we, could, we, could, we get to that point because we see Lazarus, the one that died, wasn't in this situation like this Lazarus who was poor and had sores and was begging for money. The other Lazarus was not poor. Okay, so that's how we can decipher that there's two different Lazarus. But going back to understanding that this guy has a name almost gives us the feel that this is more than a parable, right? That this is, could be and may be a real story, right? Not something that Jesus makes up to give us, again, spiritual truths. I think there's, there are spiritual truths to this, but at the same time, I believe that this is a true story, that there really was a man named Lazarus, that there really was a rich man, that they really both did die, and one went to Abraham's bosom, and one went to Hades. One was in torment, one was in paradise, right? And we see Abraham in this picture as well, which we'll get to in a little bit. So I guess the meaning of the story may not change if, if one believes it's a parable and one believes it's true, or one believes it's both. Uh, what The truths behind it are still the same. So we see in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Now, if you were to see somebody today in purple clothing and fine linen, would you think they were rich? No, maybe, maybe, maybe not. More, more than likely not. How would you guess someone was rich? Like, what would they have to wear for you to think they were rich? A frown? Oh, <laughs> you said a crown. I thought you said a frown. They have to wear a frown. That's how you know they're they're rich and they're miserable, right? Okay. Like, what what are the fancy brands out there that like a, a piece of clothing is like four hundred dollars, like a shirt? Okay. All the girls are saying stuff. The guys have like no idea. <laughs> Okay, so, like, guys, shoes-wise, like, there's, like, Yeezys and Jordans. Okay, a lot of, lot of different brands I have no idea about. Some of them, shh, some of them have been in the, in the news recently with some, some bad things tied behind it, um, which is generally the case. 
But I was thinking of this, and I'm like, what? And I asked the question, because if you saw somebody wearing something like that, you wouldn't think they were rich. In this time, in Jesus' time, wearing something purple implied that you were rich, because it always implied royalty, and the purple dye itself was just expensive, right? So for you and I, we wouldn't be wearing purple. I don't barely see any purple in here, right? I'm not wearing purple. So we wouldn't be wearing that. Obviously, now it's easier to get. It's not, it does not relate to someone being rich. But we do know that there are certain brands in our time where we could look and we could say, oh, well, he had enough money to, to buy that, right? Um, like, for instance, shoes, like, I don't, know how, I don't know any of this stuff, so bear with me. But, like, Jordans or Yeezys, like, what do they go for? 500? Like, okay. With that $500 of shoes, I think of, like, how many of my shoes I could buy. <laughs> Probably, like... 50. Wait. No, not 50. That's a little. Anyways, then I got to thinking and I'm like, think of this. All right, hear me out. Hear me out. We're just dialoguing a little bit. How far, and this is just a question I have, how far can a pastor go? I'm specific to a pastor, okay? How far can they go with the type of clothing that they wear? Because is it bad to wear expensive clothing? No. No. Do you think it's bad for a pastor to wear expensive clothing? Is there a point where it's too expensive for them to wear? Now, I think we may all have different opinions as to, like, how far is too far and how much is too much. But it just, it just made me think, right, especially with the story. So you have this, this rich man, right, who is faring sumptuously every day, the Bible says, right? So he's eating the best of the best. He's wearing the best of the best. Right outside the gates is this man who, is, who has to beg. I don't know what situation he got in or how, why he has to. He's sick. He's got sores. He's got dogs licking his sores, okay? Now, this isn't like some cute little puppy like you have at home, okay? In, in the times that Jesus lived in, okay, dogs were not looked upon, especially in the streets, were not looked upon like as pets, as something cute. They had these wild dogs that would go through trash, eat it, and so licking his sores wasn't like a, oh, that's comforting. No, it, was, it, it added to his misery, okay? It was something that continued to speak of his uncleanliness, okay? So here he is having no food, begging, has sores, is sick in some type of way. It's evident. And then he's got these nasty, unclean dogs now licking upon his sores. And again, there's not much that separates these two men, right? If, if we're talking about, like, space-wise, Feet, yards, meters, whatever you want to look at, right? Not much, but completely different, contrasting lives. And I think that's what we see in this section here. A tale of two men, you've got two completely different lives, and then you also have two completely different afterlives, right? But I want to go back to the point where you have this rich man, and right next to him is this poor man, right? And, and it makes me only think, like, how far can a pastor go and what he wears when there may be people in his congregation who don't have a lot of money, who are hurting, who are struggling. You know, it just made me think of that. You know, because I see, especially nowadays, and again, I don't think dressing nice is bad or inherently, you know, sinful. But I wonder, with the heart of that man, why? And I think that's important, too. Like, why? Why do I dress the way that I dress? You know, and here's this man 
who could have helped this other man, right? And I think Jesus gets that point across a lot when it comes to the poor, is that we need to help them, right? We need to help them. And, he's, and he, when he talks about the poor, he's talking about the poor who are literally poor in money, right? And we all have different opinions and, you know, what we should do to help and are we truly helping those who are poor and begging for money? Are they just using it for something bad? But one of the things that, that I learned by going to Atlanta, okay, when we did our, our homeless outreach, was whether they use it for bad or not is not something you can control. In either way, they need to know the love of Christ. They're human beings. They have names, right? They do. I remember... A couple years ago, one of my siblings reached out to me. Not, siblings you don't know, so it's not the three that you know. Um, these were siblings that I found out later on in life that I had. And one of them was going through a hard time. I didn't really know them well, um, but I was talking and trying to get to know them. And she reached out to me and she said, look, she just had a baby. She's like, I need, I need help. I need money. And I was like, well, I, I want to bless her. And so my wife and I talked about it, and I sent her some money. And one of our hesitations was, is she going to... Well, she said she would pay me back, and one of our hesitations was, is she, is she going to use it for something that's, that's bad? Now, I don't want to condone or, I can't think of the word. Um, what's the word that you use when, when enable? Thank you. I don't want to enable either. So you got to be very wise, right? Uh, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. But we, th- we prayed through it, and we thought, okay, we're going to do what we're called to do, Right? And that's to love, and that's to help in any way possible. And what she does with it is on her, right? That's, that is her, her fault, not my fault. Again, I don't want to enable, I want to be wise in what we do, um, but Jesus often talks about the poor and how we are to help the poor, and I think that's an example of where our hearts are at. Like, if we don't have a desire to help people who are in need, then I think we really need to question our faith in our relationship with Christ, Right? Because Christ often helped those who couldn't help themselves. Right? We see that with the example through much of these parables from 14, 15, 16. Right? Um, and so I think that's important for us to understand. But here, this rich man is completely contrasts life. He's clothed in purple. He's got fine linen. You know, he could eat whatever he wanted every day, every meal, never had to worry about it. But here's a certain beggar in verse 20 whose name is Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Lazarus here is short for Eleazar, which means he whom God helps. And again, this is not the same Lazarus. So here he is, he's sick, he couldn't get around on his own, he's at the gate, he's, the only way for him to survive is to beg, right? It's the only way for him to survive. And so this rich man, he's having the time of his life, the best life he could live. And then you would say, for the poor man, that he's having the opposite. He's in misery, agony, right? But then we see something happen that happens to everyone, which is what? Death, right? Death. They both die. The rich will die, the poor will die. And one of the things that we see is after, the, after this happens is, again, they have still contrasting lives, but it's switched, it's switched. And one of the things that I want to point out to make sure that we don't have a misunderstanding of is the rich man does not go to Hades because he was rich. 
the poor man does not go into Abraham's bosom or heaven because he was poor, right? That is not the equation here. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're going to hell. Also, the equation is not because you're rich, you go to heaven, right? The way to heaven and the way to hell has nothing to do with the circumstances in life. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what? What saves us? Faith. Thank you. We are saved by grace through faith, nothing else. So we cannot assume that this man goes to Abraham's bosom because, just because he had a miserable life. And God's like, well, because you had a miserable life, now I'm going to give you a good life after. And just because the rich man was rich and had a great and awesome life, God's not like, well, now you need to you know, understand what it's like not to. That's not the case here. Okay? Through Scripture, we know that we are saved by grace through faith. So the understanding is that the rich man did not place his faith in God. He did not. And I think that's pretty evident by the way that he handled his money, right? Because I believe that if you have the resources, you would help those in need, right? And he didn't. Here's this man who is at his gate begging constantly and sick, and he doesn't help him. And then we have this poor man who I would believe, I do believe, put his faith in Jesus Christ, And just because we put our faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that our life is automatically going to change and look like the rich man's life. Do we understand that? That we will still have hardships, that it still might, you might be in a situation like a beggar. I mean, I don't think that's always going to be the case. But the point is, it's, it's not about the tangible, it's not about the circumstances. So it was in verse 22 that the beggar died. And he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. So here we even see that after death, right, Lazarus was uh, not treated the same as the rich man. The rich man was buried. Lazarus wasn't. But there is a difference now because we see that the, the poor man, Lazarus, is carried away by angels. It's a beautiful thing to see that he's carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And so Jesus here continues with this comparison or contrast of these two men. No longer are they living earthly lives, but both are now dead, but they switch in their circumstances. Lazarus is not suffering anymore. He's no longer hungry. He's no longer needy. He's in what we would call paradise. But then there's the opposite for the rich man. It says that he's in torment every day, every moment, every moment. So what is Abraham's bosom? Like, why is the the poor man escorted by angels to Abraham's bosom? What is that? Who is Abraham? That dude in the Old Testament, right? Father Abraham, right? He had many sons, many sons, had Father Abraham, right? Abraham is, is he, he gets that title because he's like the father of, of the Jews, right? It, it started with him with a covenant that God made through Abraham. So the Jews, they had the, again, they had this misconception, okay? They had this misconception in Jesus' time that because they descended from Father Abraham, okay, like many generations, that they were going to heaven because they were Jewish, Right? 
And Jesus is like, that's, that's not the case, man. Yeah, like I, I chose you as a people, but you are saved by faith. Whether that's before Jesus' death or after Jesus' death, you are saved by faith, not a proximity, not you know, relationship with, with people in this world, not because you come from a certain lineage. Okay? He says, you call Abraham your father, but he says that's not the case. He says, your father is who? He says, your father is Satan, right? the father of lies, because that's who you follow. He says, I don't know who you are. He says, here I am, the Messiah, the Son of God, and you don't even recognize me as God. Right? And so that's this misconception that they had. But there was a time before Jesus died, right? We understand that? We as New Testament Christians, we have a new covenant. We're saved by grace through faith that if we believe in him, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, correct? But what happened to people before Jesus died? Like, how were they saved? Because it's not like they put their faith in Jesus who died on the cross, right? They didn't know that. They didn't know Jesus was going to die on the cross, correct? And it hadn't happened yet either. So how were they saved? I mean, I just said it like a couple seconds ago. Through faith, right? Through faith. It's no different through faith. The only difference was that Christ had not died on the cross yet. So when we see this, when we see that this man is taken to Abraham's bosom, I don't think it's just a parable. I think it's a true story. And so we see that he's taking to a literal place before Christ died. How do I know this is before Christ died? Well, because Jesus is the one that's sharing the story, right? So this is before Jesus has died. And he's taken to this place called Abraham's bosom, or what we would call paradise, right? Even the, the thief on the cross before Jesus' death, right? Even though Jesus was on the cross, he hadn't died. The thief says to him, or, uh, or Jesus says to him, today you will be with, be with me in paradise, right? And that's speaking of Abraham's bosom, and here we have almost in, in the same place, we have two different things happening, two different places, and they're divided by, by a chasm, right? You have paradise, you have Abraham's bosom, where it's, I mean, I guess how you would describe it, it's paradise, right? It's everything that he wants and needs. It's good, it's comforting, it's, it's I mean, I can't put it in terminology. But then we have the opposite with the rich man who goes to Hades, Right? And verse 23 says he's in torments in Hades. And he says, look, if you could just dip your finger and give me a, like just a drop of water, he says that would be like the best thing ever. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't that, isn't that like just a, a real picture of the torment in hell? And I think it's important for us to understand that both are very real, right? As real as the life that we live. And both are very permanent. And both are very long, right? Life here, we, we think it's long. I mean, you guys are young, so you think you have, you know, another 60 years. And thinking of another 60 years, you know, if you're only 15, that's, you know, living your life four times over again. That seems like a long time, and it is. But it goes by quickly, and in comparison to eternity, this life is, is very short, right? And so Jesus, as he's teaching constantly, is talking about the eternal, not the temporal, right? Because it's the internal that matters. It's the eternal that's e- eternal, and the temporal that's temporal. There's a big difference between the two, and I don't think we have to describe that, but you get it. 
And I think we have to come to a place, because hear me out, I think there's a lot of people who struggle with the fact that hell is real and that there is a loving God who would send people to hell and that, the, that hell is tormenting and that hell is eternal. All those different nuances to, to hell, they have, we have a hard time of reconciling. And I don't know the way to help you reconcile that other than putting your trust in God. And knowing that if that is what he has decided for people who have not put their faith in him from the time that they die, well, then that is just, and that's what they deserve. There's no other way for me to help you to try to reconcile that than to trust in God, that he knows what is best and he has designed what is right, if this makes sense. And again, we have to understand that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Is that correct? We know that through scripture. And we know that not just through scripture, but what he did by his actions, right? That he died for all of humanity to give them an opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond to it. And we know that God is a good God because he doesn't force us to submit to him. He doesn't force us to believe, but he gives us the free will to either believe in him or to reject that. Correct? And there's consequences to that rejection. And it's not like God is all butthurt that he rejected you and that's why you go to hell. No, remember, this is the, the, the natural occurrence of holiness and sin, right? That the wages of sin is death. It's a separation from God, right? And to be separated from God is torment in of, of itself, okay? So there is a spiritual death that happens because of your sin. And if your sin has not been paid for, which is what Jesus did on the cross, well, then you need to go pay for it. And it's eternal. And it's tormenting. But again, God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to go there. He gives you a way out. He gives you a way out. And he gives every single person opportunity to either hear the gospel, know the gospel in some type of way, and to put their faith in him or not. Nobody is going to stand before Jesus and say, I never heard. I grew up in, you know, the jungles of Africa. I didn't know. That's not going to be the case. It won't. And if we think that's the case, well, then we think too little of God. And we don't understand that he can do his purpose, right? And we also serve a just and gracious God. And so we've got this, this difference in these two places, okay? We've got Hades. We've got Abraham's bosom. And so what I believe through reading scripture and understanding scripture is that those who died before Christ died on the cross is that they went to this place called Abraham's bosom, okay? And then once Christ died, he brought them with him to what we would call heaven, okay? And we see this in 1 Peter. We see this in, um, uh, I think, Jude and somewhere else where we get an understanding of, of how this all ties together and why we can come to that conclusion. So there's, there's heaven, there's Hades, and Hades is not even hell, okay? Because there will be a time when Hades gets cast into the lake of fire, which we call hell, which we see in Revelation chapter 20. And that has not happened yet, okay? That has not happened yet. So David even speaks of this prophetically about the resurrection of Jesus uh, when he writes in Psalm 1610, uh, when he talks about Sheol, Sheol being a Hebrew word meaning, you know, underworld, grave, hell, pit, however you want to look at that. But in Psalm 1610, he says, 
For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So I guess what we could say is that in this place of Hades, again, there's two compartments. There's one that's paradise and there's one that's torment. Okay? And there's a chasm that dividing them. And once you die, you go to one and you cannot cross over one to the other, as Abraham says here. Right? No matter how much you desire, no matter this or that, you cannot cross over. Abraham's very specific with that in verse 26. Um, so Sheol has, again, these two compartments. You've got the righteous, you've got the unrighteous. The, the ones who put their faith in God, the ones who did not. Again, even the thief saying, or Jesus saying to the thief in Luke 23, 43, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. David, again, speaks prophetically in Psalm 68, 18. Okay? He says, you have ascended on high and you have led captivity captive. And Paul even quotes this in Ephesians chapter 4, speaking of when Jesus is going to go down and bring those with him to heaven. It even says that he goes to the spirits and he proclaims to them. And this is happening, because remember, between Jesus' death and resurrection, how many days were there? What's he doing during that time? Fiddling his thumbs? Folding his, his napkin in the tomb? And laying it all nice? Well, that took about five minutes, right? So what's he doing for the rest of the however many hours and minutes that is? What we see through Scripture is that he goes down and he proclaims to the spirits. And it's not as if Jesus, don't misunderstand this, Jesus doesn't go down to share the gospel with them as an evangelist, but he goes down as, as a king to share victory, to proclaim victory. That is the good news, that Jesus has died and that Jesus has defeated sin which means he's defeated death, and then he's going to rise again. He proclaims victory to these spirits. That once and for all, there's a finality to what, where they are. That there is, no, there is no hope after death of changing things. That's why it's so important. That's why we share the gospel every day. That's why we see the gospel in Scripture, because there's a finality to the afterlife, if you want to call it afterlife. There's a finality to it, right? There's a finality to it. But again, where we go is based on our faith in Christ. And our faith in Christ changes our heart, which changes our character, which changes our actions. Right? So if I were rich, well, you would be evident that I'm a Christian. Not because I'm rich, but because of how I use that money. Right? I wouldn't allow it to become my God. As Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot have two gods. You cannot have money, and you cannot have God. And we can even serve money and it become our master and become our God if we're poor. Anything can become our God if we allow it. And Jesus says you cannot serve both. So again, don't miss the point of this verse here. These verses both die. The poor man dies. The wealthy man dies. But the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So it's not a matter of if or when you will die. The question here is, are you going to the right place when you die? So Jesus shares all the time. There's hope. There's the gospel. He wishes that no man should perish. That's not God's heart. That's not God's intent. God did not create you to just throw you into hell. That's not a purpose. 
Could he easily do that? Of course. He could do, I mean, God could do whatever he wants. But he doesn't go outside of his nature, right? And his nature is holy, just, and loving. And so that's why we see scripture played out the way that it is. That's why we see how God plays things out because it's his very nature, right? It's his very nature. So in verse 24, it says, He cried and he said, to, said Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. So real quick, just to, to reiterate, so we don't have a wrong assumption that Abraham was... He says, Abraham, or, or Father Abraham, okay, calls out to him as Father Abraham. Abraham is his father in the sense of the generational lineage, of the Jewish lineage. But remember, that's not what saved people. It's faith, okay? And we, we could insert anything else. We could think, well, I'm saved because, you know, I'm rich, and it seems as if God is blessing me, or I'm saved because uh, I go to church, uh, I've read the Bible, you know, or maybe I'm saved because I, you know, I, I, I'm doing good things, I'm a good person, or I've got a good career, and the career is, is helping, to pe- helping people, whatever it may be. All of those things are, you know, they're sweet, they're nice, right? But that's, that's not the equation in heaven, right? What is it? I'll keep asking it. What is it? Faith. Faith in, in what? God, Jesus, right? Faith in Jesus Christ for what he did on the cross. Believing that what Jesus said, he did. Right? That Jesus died on the cross, that he paid for our sins, that he rose from the grave, that there is no longer, no more sting to death, that, that sin has no more victory, that death has no more victory, but now he has won and he is victorious and he has taken our punishment. And so the rich man is not saved because... He considers Abraham his father, even though he refers to him as father. Abraham, again, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. And Interesting as you read that, because it's like, here's this guy who still thinks he's almost better than Lazarus, and he's telling Lazarus what to do. <laughs> Send that guy, that servant, to come dip his finger in water and bring it to me. Oh my goodness, no. He says, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham says to them, son... And he says, son, not because he's a child of God, but again, he comes from the lineage of Abraham. He says, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Hear this. For the person who rejects Jesus Christ, this world is as good as it gets. This world is the closest that an unbeliever will get to heaven. And for the believer, this world is as bad as it gets. And this world is as close to hell as the unbeliever will ever get. When I read that, I was like, that is really helpful. To understand, again, that there is something beyond this life. Jesus says, don't put your time, don't put your efforts, don't put any of that into the temporal, to the things that will will rust and fade away and burn away, but put it in the eternal. It says, where your heart is, your treasure will be also. Is it, is it in, the, in, in the kingdom of God, the things that are eternal? Where is it in the, the kingdom of this world, the things that are temporal? And he says, besides all this, in verse 26, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, 
so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So here Abraham explains that there's an impassable chasm that prevents anyone from going from one side to the other. There's, there's no hope of, of helping him. So he says in verse 27, he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. He's like, okay. Doesn't even, like, complain. He's like, doesn't argue about it, understanding that it's, it's final. But he says, look, if you could do this one thing, if you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So finally, we, we see the rich man not being selfish, right? And he's actually thinking of other people. And he says, send Lazarus to them. Send the dead man back to them. Tell them of what, what they need to do so they don't come here because it's that bad. And I don't want them to come here. Abraham says this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's like, if, if you bring him back to life and he shares of, of this, they will surely repent. What does repent mean? No. To change your mind. Understand that, because that's important. To, to, we need to know the proper understanding of what repentance means, or else we'll confuse our, our doctrine or our theology. It, it implies turning away or turning around. It does. Because that's the action that happens after the changing of the mind. Okay, so you're, you're not completely wrong. But it speaks of, of a change of mind. And so often throughout the New Testament, we see repent, repent, repent. The, the kingdom of God is at hand. You must repent. But then we see other scripture where it talks about repentance and faith. You know, like you must repent, you must have faith. And then we see other scripture. There's a hundred different verses that talk about faith and faith alone saving you. And there's... Plenty of others that talk about, well, if you want to be born again, if, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must repent. So then we get confused and we're like, which one is it? Do we repent or do we have faith? I mean, you go through scripture and you'll see that there's plenty of, of scripture on both of them separately that you either, you are saved by faith or repentance. So how do we justify that? How do we, how do we, because it seems as if there's two different things we have to do, but here I'm here to tell you that they're one and the same. They're one and the same. Because repentance, again, means to change your mind. Faith means to, to believe, to trust. And the idea that, that Christ gets at and what he wants us to do is for us to change our mind in what we are trusting. Because before Christ, we're trusting in something. I don't know what it is. It could be different for all of us. But he shares the good news, he shares the gospel, he tells the kingdom of God is at hand, so you change your mind to simply trust in him. That's what happens. And then comes the change of heart, the change of character, the change of actions, the turning away from things, the turning around, you know, no longer dabbling in this sin, but, but following Christ into his holiness. And so again, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, if one of them goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's like, look, they, they need, if they just saw and heard, like, imagine somebody coming back from the dead, 
knowing what Hades is like, knowing what paradise is like, and then sharing it with them. They'll repent. They'll change their mind. They'll finally believe. (laughs) This is what he says to them. This is the response in verse 31, closing here. He says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one, though one rise from the dead. I want to encourage you, because I know many of us in here, we would like to see the miracles. We would like Jesus to respond to our requests to help us believe. We would like God to, to do the thing that we ask him to do so that we can genuinely put our faith in him. So that we can have a, a foundation of, okay, God, like you responded, you, you made that tree fall when it could not fall. When I, asked you to, to, when I asked you, God, make that tree fall so I know that you're real. And you know what Abraham says? Even if that happened, you still wouldn't believe. He says, even if, if this great miracle of someone coming back to life and told you about Hades, you still would not believe because you first rejected the gospel to begin with. You rejected uh, the prophets and Moses. You rejected the word of God. There is nothing more powerful than the word of God. I think of Elisha when he calls down fire from heaven and everyone was amazed by it. No, nobody was transformed by it. Nobody started to worship God permanently. They may have been like, wow, God, yeah, yeah. But that's why eventually Elisha got, I think it's Elisha, right? Or is Elijah? It's one of them. I always mix them up. He then gets, you know, saddened and goes to the cave and, and, and he wants to die because there's been no response. He's like, these people just, they don't see it. They don't get it. And it, it has nothing, our faith has nothing to do with the things that, that we see. It has nothing to do with miracles, has nothing to do with somebody coming back from the dead and, and, and doing this. No, like, the genuineness of our faith is found in the scriptures. Because the scriptures are truth. And there's nothing more powerful than that truth. And if we don't respond to that, we won't respond to anything else. Now, the miracles can help establish or, or, or strengthen our faith, I think. You know, I think there's plenty of miracles that we see nowadays where, where God performs these things, and it doesn't give us faith, but may strengthen our faith. Our faith comes from what, guys? Where does it come from? This is important to understand, too. Faith comes by hearing and hearing. Somebody say it. By the Word of God. That's it. People try to come up with other things, like these Christian podcasts and YouTube and pastors. And, you know, I've seen it. I've heard it. It's very simple. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. That's it. Oh, what about the person that can't hear? (laughs) Well, they can understand somehow, right? It's It's not always a literal hearing, right? But... The idea is that it comes from Scripture, right? It comes from Scripture. Our faith comes from the Holy Word of God, that he has spoken, that it is real, that it's powerful, and is more powerful than a dead man coming back to life and telling you, do this so you don't go to hell. Well, if you haven't already responded to the Scriptures, you're not going to respond to that either. Because you know what? Even Jesus himself raised up Lazarus. Remember this? The other Lazarus in John chapter 11. And what was the response of some people? Well, they still wanted to kill Jesus, right? You think, there's the proof. Jesus has already done it. He brought somebody back 
from life. But it says in John chapter 12, in verse 10, it says the, pre- the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Not just Jesus, but him. I'm like, dude, the guy just died. Why do you want to kill him again? Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. There was a response by some. But to, for us to be so ignorant and to think that we need a miracle to finally believe in Jesus, it's not a good thing, guys. It's not a good thing. It's very clear that Scripture is all we need. All we need. And, and the beautiful thing is that you guys hear it week in and week out, but there has to be a response to it. You know, sin, or not sin, Scripture reveals so much of who Christ is, our Savior, you know, our sin. It reveals so much of, of who we are. And then it gives us the, the simple blueprint of, okay, it shows me this. Jeffrey, you're a sinner, right? You can't live up to the law. The prophets tell you this in the Old Testament. The law tells you this. You can't live up to it. You're wretched. You're horrible. Your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags, right? My works can't gain me into the presence of God. Nothing, nothing of that accord, right? It shows me that I'm sinful and that I'm in need of a Savior to save me from the condemnation and the wages of my sin, which is death, right? And the death is the separation of God, and God doesn't want us to be separated, so he sends his only son, right? And it can only be Jesus Christ who can die for our sins because it has to be a a, a kinsman redeemer, right? Somebody who is actually human, but also has to be God, the one who can pay for that debt, the one who can only rise from the dead, because we can all die, but none of us can rise from the dead of our own accord, our own power, Jesus can because he's God. So he pays for that debt. And then he tells us over and over and over again that if you want to be with him in paradise, that he's done all the work, you just need to put your trust in him. And when we believe in him, it says we are transformed, that we get a new heart, that we become a new person, that we no longer walk the ways of the world, but but the spirit of God. Right? There's this huge transformation that happens. And instantly, guys, we get the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, which is a seal upon our souls. Right? But then we get the inheritance of God because now I'm a child of God, which means part of that inheritance is being with him in the place that he's prepared for us in heaven, which is a beautiful and wonderful place, which, again, my terminology is nothing in comparison to what it is. But it's amazing because that's where God is. But if we decide to reject, if that is our response, we roll our eyes, if we scoff at it, and we think, I am not in need of it, that I just want to live my best life now, that's all it's going to be, is you will live your best life now. And let me tell you, it's probably not going to be that great. Because even if you gain the whole world, yes, you will lose your soul, but it will never satisfy. It never does. And you know this just by the little bit of the things that you've tried to gain from this world. The little tiny things. And you think, if I could just have more, that's always going to be the case. And because you've rejected Christ, well, then you have to pay for your sins. There's consequences to your unrighteousness because we serve and we were created by a holy, perfect, and just God. Remember, that doesn't negate his love because he's given you an option. He sent his only son to die for you. But again, there are two very real things after this life. Hell is very real. It's not temporal. It's eternal. It's not fun. It's not a party. Okay? And hell is very real. Or heaven is very real. I don't want two hells. I just want hell and heaven. Right? 
And the only way, the only way is through Jesus Christ. The only way to the Father, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There's no other religion. There's no other uh, idea. There's no other thought. Don't be deceived in thinking that there is nothing after this life. There is. Even everyone who believes that, I believe, knows because God has put eternity in every single person's heart. Ecclesiastes tells us that. So even they themselves are denying the very fact which they know in their hearts that there is something beyond this life, that there has to be something beyond this reality. There has to be a creator, not just happenstance, not just the Big Bang, not just, oh, you know, like, wow, we, we converted from one species to another. That's not the case. We have a creator who loves us and cares for us and has a purpose and design for us. We screwed it up, but he fixed it if we put our faith in him, right? So next week, we'll, char- we'll start chapter 17 as Jesus continues to teach, this time teaching his disciples, and uh, slowly make our way through Luke and hopefully finish by October if uh, the Lord allows. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you even, even for the rain, Lord. I know it may not be a beautiful day in the sense of the sun shining and the, the warmth, but Lord, it's still a beautiful day since we get to gather together. We get to be together. We get to hear of your word. We get to worship you. Lord, you've given the breath in our lungs. Lord, help us to, to walk this week out, Lord, with you. Lord, that we would grow closer to you. Lord, that you would convict us in areas of our life that is not pleasing to you. Lord, that you would encourage us in areas Lord, where we're, we need to, to hand over to you, to give over to you. And I pray that you would be with us as we go forward. Lord, that we would glorify you in everything that we do. Lord, if there's anyone in here this room who is struggling in putting their, their faith in you, I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to work on them. Lord, that they would surrender to you. Lord, that they would find the, the true freedom in dying to themselves and living for you. And so we just praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.